Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can find more calm, comfort, and clarity through the simple act of slowing down. This week's episode is a recording of a live Zoom talk and Q&A that I did on November 17th, 2020, which has been edited for flow and clarity. And I also added answers to a few questions I couldn't get to, or let's be honest, missed seeing in the chat window on the call. All right, let's dive in. Welcome to a live Q&A for Hurry Slowly about tender discipline. If you're not already familiar with that phrase, tender discipline, I know many of you are. I first talked about it in episode of season two of Hurry Slowly, which was called Who Are You Without the Doing? And for those of you who haven't heard me talk about it before, it's sort of the concept that this Q&A is organized around. So I want to speak just for a few minutes to introduce you to the concept. And it's really this idea of being disciplined about doing the work, whatever your work is in this moment. It could be your literal job. It could be personal or spiritual work. It could be social justice work. It could be relationship work. It could be a creative project, whatever the work is. It's about doing that work in a disciplined but gentle way. And we think of discipline as coming from the outside, but really it comes from the inside. It's something that we do to ourselves or hopefully with ourselves, right? Once we're adults, our parents don't discipline us anymore. We discipline ourselves. And tender discipline really pushes back against this whole suite of ideas that have been embedded in us by our capitalist culture about speed and efficiency and progress And that those are the most important values that we should infuse into our concept of discipline. And it pushes back against that idea that when we're doing a task, the best way to do it is to get from here to there as quickly as possible. And that when you get there, you damn well better have a product to show for it, right? Just being you isn't enough. It's what you produce that matters. That's what capitalist culture teaches us that we don't have inherent value, that we have value when we produce things. And of course, also when we consume things, right? Because that whole capitalist cycle doesn't really work very well without that bit. Now, of course, producing things, being generative, isn't by its nature bad. And oftentimes it feels really wonderful. As humans, we love to use our creativity to birth new things into the world. But tender discipline is about doing that in a gentle way way, not in this driving, relentless efficiency that is all that matters kind of way. It's about how do you coach yourself? How do you talk to yourself? How do you frame your work? Do you do it in a harsh, critical, maybe even cruel sort of way? Or do you do it in a gentle, encouraging, loving way? I mean, just think about that image of birthing something into the world that I just used, right? What kind of doula are you when you're coaching yourself, when you're talking to yourself, when you're planning your day? What does a doula sound like? How does she behave? It's firm, but it's gentle, right? Supportive, encouraging, trusting, 
right? reminding you to breathe, telling you that you can do this, that you've got this, that you're strong, that you were designed to do this, holding your hand, wiping your brow, right? Sure, she's telling you that you have to push and it's painful. There is most certainly discipline there, but it's gentle and trusting and supportive. Now think about how you talk to yourself in the privacy of your own mind. What kind of doula are you for yourself? Are you encouraging? Do you have faith in yourself? Do you tell yourself to push but also to take breaths, take breaks, breathe? If you're anything like me or let's say unreformed me, the answer is probably no. That voice isn't a doula at all. It's more like a drill sergeant. Who's like, keep pushing. There will be no breaks, right? Quit whining. It's not that bad. There's this drill sergeant, this mean boss, this inner critic that's honestly kind of skeptical that you're really going to have the discipline to get the job done. And so it's hectoring you all the time, right? That's who you're talking to all day. And that guy's the worst. So I fired him a few years ago. But that doesn't stop him from still showing up at work, right? He still shows up all the time. But now I see him. I'm like, I see you. That voice that lambastes me, right? That demands perfectionism in all things that says the beatings will continue until morale improves. Right? Have you met this guy? Do you know that voice? Well, that voice, that mode of working, that ideology is what tender discipline seeks to eradicate. Right, to shift our focus from this incessant critical chatter of the mind downward into the wisdom of the body, which knows how to give birth, to be generative, to do the work intuitively. And now, as we all know, 2020 has been a year. I don't need to tell you that. And it's not over yet. Economically, socially, politically, of course, from a health perspective, this year has been and continues to be incredibly challenging. And depending on where you sit, the color of your skin, the nature of your work, the size of your savings account, the impacts have been really different. But I think that no matter how different our circumstances are, we've all realized one thing, and that's that the old ways don't work anymore. And whether we're talking about the political divides that we need to heal or the social justice work and the mending of inequalities that we need to do or the reforms to our healthcare system and our safety net, it's all work. And underneath that work is a mindset and an ideology that up until now has been based on this driving capitalistic speed and efficiency obsessed mode of working which even before the pandemic, even before the uprisings and this national reckoning, even before that, had already got many of us knee-deep in burnout, right? Or if we weren't there, we were already maybe teetering on the brink, sort of flirting with disaster. But that old way of working isn't going to work anymore. Number one, because that's how we got burnt out in the first place, Right? But number two, because we can see the scale of these issues that we need to address, political, societal, and so on, and it's massive. 
And we know it's time to plant the seeds for a new world, for a new normal. And that starts, in my opinion, at home on a daily level, in our minds, with our internal dialogue, the way that we talk to ourselves, the way we move through our day. And that's where the ability to sustain ourselves starts, right? Right at home, right here. It starts with developing tender discipline with ourselves, with finding a balance between pouring our hearts into our work while also creating space for rest and renewal. So we see this work ahead and it's big and it's going to take a while. So we have to start by learning to take care of ourselves, to be gentler with ourselves so that we can work in a sustainable way. Right? Rather than just pouring coffee and anxiety-inducing news articles into our body to artificially activate our adrenal glands and our nervous system so that we can continue to drive around in a car that's essentially running on empty. That's not going to work anymore, right? We need to find a new way to take care of ourselves. So that's what this Q&A is about, finding a new way to take care of ourselves. And I have a bunch of tips that I can share about how I practice tender discipline, what my daily routine looks like, but I'd rather go ahead and open up the floor to you all to guide the conversation. You're welcome to ask me questions about how to build rest and renewal into your routine or what you're wrestling with when it comes to tender discipline. Or you can also just share something that's working for you right now, that's helping you rest, that's helping you feel more rejuvenated, that's helping reduce your anxiety. I know that you all have as much to share as I do. Let's start with a question from Kristen who says, planning for the year ahead and setting goals seems especially fraught this year. Can you talk a little bit about how tender discipline applies to goal setting, especially when there are so many unknowns? This is a great question. I'm really glad that you asked. And I think it's so relevant to what so many of us are wrestling with right now. And I think the first thought might be to just cling a little bit less tightly to our goals in this moment, if we can, to be a little bit less achievement-oriented and to be a little bit more gentle with ourselves. And I say that, you know, for very many reasons. And one of them may be that, you know, one of the gifts, I think, of this year, which has been an incredibly difficult year, and there have been a lot of hard lessons, is perspective, right? And so really, I think so many of us are reassessing our values, reassessing what matters, reappreciating the richness of certain things that we had maybe taken for granted before. And I think a lot of that recalibration that's coming from all of this perspective that we're getting, as challenging as receiving some of that perspective is, is that it may, in fact, really upturn what some of our goals were in the first place. So I think that's kind of the first thing to consider is this idea of clinging a little bit less tightly to those goals, and especially those goals that you maybe had, you know, from last year, from early on in 2020, before everything started to go down. And just being okay with understanding that maybe some of those goals are going to shift, or maybe some of those goals are just going to drift away and seem less important. And new things that are newly appreciated, that seem newly rich, 
that are nourishing in ways you maybe never even noticed before are going to kind of come into focus. So I think that's the first thing. And then I think beyond that, really just being so gentle with ourselves and offering ourselves a lot of allowances in terms of what we think it's realistic to achieve, especially when you talk about doing anything that's innovative, launching any new type of creative project, everything always takes longer than you think it will. And it does because it's something new, right? You've never done it before. So you don't know how long it's going to take. So almost any new, you know, goal that you undertake in the creative realm, in the realm of innovation, is going to take sort of longer than you expect. And that's just a given. And then in this moment, you know, where we're under so much duress, we're living with so much uncertainty, we're living with so many constraints, and we're living with so many different duties, right? You know, so many of us have childcare or homeschooling kids, you know, in a way that we weren't before. Some of us are working from our dining room table. Some of us are working under extreme financial duress, right? There's all of these constraints. And I think given all of that, we really have to offer ourselves a lot of allowances about number one, what goals it's really realistic to set in the first place. And then secondarily, how long it's going to take us to kind of move through the process of getting to those goals. So, you know, knowing that during this particular moment, it could well happen that, you know, a bad news item is, you know, completely throws you off or is deeply triggering and might just throw you off your game for a whole work day. And so sometimes those things are going to come up and you're just not going to be able to progress with this kind of, you know, steady drumbeat sort of rhythm that, you know, maybe might be a little bit more realistic and more quote unquote normal time. So I think we have to make allowances for that. And then I think also just in terms of the scale of the goals that we choose, I think we need to kind of scale back and or give ourselves more time to reach those goals and just be really gentle with ourselves about that, right? Not self-critical or not disappointed, just understanding that, hey, this is where you are at. This is where I'm at. This is where the world is at, right? Everything is moving slowly right now. And that's okay. And in fact, it's even a good thing for many of us to have to practice So I think we have to approach our goals with that kind of really gentle perspective in this moment. Let's move on to a question from Alexa, who says, I'm trying to shift my values around distraction. I feel like I go to social media when I'm trying to numb myself or distract myself, and I'm trying to renegotiate that right now. But I feel like it's been so easy to go there when I don't want to think about anything. Any thoughts about this? Well, I think certainly there is the question of, especially right now, of sort of not wanting to be alone with their thoughts or wanting some sort of mindless distraction because everything that we're sifting through, everything that we're seeing in the news is incredibly heavy and sort of lugubrious to deal with. One thing that I really like, this it's an idea that I got from um, David Kane, who is a blogger who runs a site called Raptitude, and he has this list that he keeps just on like a little cabinet inside, you know, his kitchen, sort of, it doesn't really matter if it's inside a cabinet, but sort of a handy location. 
Uh, I don't remember his name for it, but I think of it as sort of the, the keep doing list. And it's a little short list of the things that like reliably make him feel good. And I feel like for this particular moment in time, that's a really useful thing to have. So rather than going to these things that are just distractions or things that are just, you know, time sucks and often end up having the effect of bringing you down more than bringing you up, which is kind of what you hope for when you're, you're usually distracting yourself from something that's already bringing you down. Um, having this kind of short list of things that reliably make you feel good, you know, so it could be going for a walk with your dog. It could be meditating. It could be for me, making sure that I take my B12 supplement and my vitamin D supplement as the sunshine gets shorter every day. And I, in fact, have this list on my fridge right now of these things that's just called my keep doing list. And so thinking about what are those just like really tiny and not like big things, but things that you reliably can do to feel better. And then secondarily, I think there's really this, this issue of inputs versus outputs, right? What you're, what you're consuming, what kind of feeling that creates in you. And I can't speak for everyone, but I'm finding even for myself right now, going to the sort of mindless things that are sort of enjoyable, but unstimulating is not actually making me feel any better. It's like, I have to kind of only have these sort of, um, positive, high-value inputs. Um, and by inputs, you know, I mean the media we consume, TV, podcasts, books, etc. And so I'm finding, you know, I'll give you an example. Like I was watching a show on um, Netflix, the, the Queen's Gambit, which is a lovely show. I like it. Um, but I wasn't really getting, it wasn't really sort of getting anything out of it besides entertainment. Um and so I just stopped watching it, even though it was sort of a mindless distraction for me. And then I thought, okay, well, what is going to be feeding me more? And I ended up, my dad had mentioned this Molly Ivins documentary, had reminded me of it. Um, and it's called Raising Hell, I think. And if, for those of you who don't know, Molly Ivins is a very famous journalist in the U.S., um, big critic of George W. Bush in particular. She wrote a wonderful book about him called Shrub. And so I watched a documentary about her as this kind of, you know, firebrand, like independent journalist. And that was, you know, it was reminding me of like these qualities I really admired in people of, you know, people who are willing to say the things that no one else would say. Similarly, you know, it's like, okay, you know what, instead, I haven't watched that new Hannah Gadsby comedy show. I'm going to watch that. Like she's a really thoughtful comic. And that's been like really bringing my mood up, not because it's comedy, but because she's so thoughtful about the way that she constructs things. So I don't know if that's true for you or that would be true for other people, but I'm finding even the level of things that I have to go to for distraction right now is a little bit higher. And I need to go to those things that really feed me. Otherwise I'm just feeling kind of empty. Thanks for the question, Alexa. The next question is from Nono who says, I often find it hard to disconnect from work or to know when I'm doing enough. What process do you follow to know that you're working on what you should be at work and when to stop? I think the biggest thing in terms of how much you should be working that we don't do and that all of us need to do and need to do constantly in so many kind of areas and levels of our lives is thinking about defining what's enough in advance. 
because as I said at the outset, right, we live in this culture that is all about hustle, that's all about exponential scale, right? It's all about hockey stick-like growth. So we're surrounded by this culture that, that sort of says that it's never enough, right? And we see these iconic companies that are like unicorns that are making billions of dollars and trillions of dollars. So we have these really like outsized kind of expectations and messages that we're constantly receiving about what enough is um, at every level. And I think that we need to define what that is for ourselves within the context of our workday, within the context of a specific project. And one of the day, one of the ways that I think you can start to become more conscious of it, something that I talk about in my course Reset, is this idea of um, you know maybe breaking your project or projects that you're working on at work down into, um, you know, let's say sort of a, a three-month increment if it's a longer than three-month project, you know, breaking it down and figuring out a way to track your progress. Um, and I love to do that in analog ways. So I tend to make like, you know, get out some brown craft paper and put it up on the wall and make it, you know, make a big chart or, you know, if you're writing a novel, it could be words per day. If you're a software developer, it could be lines of code per day, or it could be lines of code cleaned up, depending on how you're looking at it. There are different ways to look at it. Um, but tracking that progress, number one, so you start to actually get a sense of, uh, progress itself of celebration in your day so you get to feel like you've done something and then you also start to see okay like this is sort of the measure of how much progress I can make in a day um you know one of the other things that happens a lot is the way that we move through our days we don't give ourselves any we make a to-do list without any consciousness about all of our other commitments. So without any consciousness of everything that's on our calendar, without any consciousness of everything in our email inbox, right? So you make that to-do list as if you had eight full hours in the day to do your work and you weren't, you know, but over here, oh my gosh, look, I'm already committed to like five, six hours of meetings. You know, I already am going to have to be going through this email inbox for one to two hours. So another kind of interesting audit that you can do that I recommend to people is to, first of all, go through your calendar, like for tomorrow, for instance, go through your calendar, write down everything on your calendar. How much time is it going to take? This is going to take an hour. This is going to take two hours in terms of your commitments. Then look at your email inbox. Okay, like how much is how much time is it going to take me to process this, right? And then combine that stuff with the to-do list that you made and like how many hours is it going to, you know, how much time is it going to take all, to do all these things I put on my to-do list? And when you do all of that, for most people, it adds up to something like 16 hours or something, right? You've, you've made this to-do list like you had eight or nine hours a day and you discounted all this other stuff. And so just starting to do things like that to get a little bit of a gauge on maybe how unrealistic you're being with your expectations in the first place, and then starting to rein them in. And so, you know, starting to on your daily to-do list, for instance, including all of those meetings. So you also get to like cross them off because it feels good and sort of celebrate that those are things that you spent time on. And then separately on those projects that you're working on, starting to track that progress, just becoming, developing a lot more consciousness around how long it takes you to do things. And so you can start to build some more reasonable expectations around like what is enough in a given workday. We have to pause now for a quick break to thank our sponsors, but we'll be back right afterwards with more questions. 
This episode is brought to you by Hover. Every idea deserves the perfect domain name. At Hover.com, you can browse hundreds of options for domain name extensions with lightning speed and then instantly lock in the one that's the right fit for you. What about .inc, for example? Millions of trusted brands from small startups to enterprise businesses now use the .inc extension to communicate trust, credibility, and professionalism. It's the new premium extension for businesses that want to be taken seriously. Whatever extension you choose, Hover can help you find, purchase, and administer your own little patch of the internet. And they do it with style. Their easy-to-use interface works like a dream, and you don't have to be a tech nerd to understand it. Heck, I created two new functional CNAME records last week, and I don't even know what a CNAME is. Because that's how easy Hover makes it. Plus, Whois Privacy is included for free with every domain. You get renewal discounts for hosting multiple domains with them. And Hover Connect can help you connect your new domain to a variety of popular website builders with just a few clicks. If you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading on over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. Once again, that's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. This episode is also brought to you by Hey. Let's be honest, email sucks, primarily because it hardly gives you any control over your inbox. It's like there's some weird set of shadow rules we all have to follow that's designed to benefit the sender, not you, the receiver. Fortunately, that dark era is over now. Email's new heyday is here. Thanks to the friendly folks at Basecamp who have completely redesigned the inbox with their new product, Hey. The main goal? To give control over your email back to you. Hey offers a slew of why didn't my email do that before style features, like ones that allow you to screen your emails like you screen your calls. Add private notes to self to any email thread. Create collections of messages and share them with your team for projects. Queue up emails for a focused reply later session. And send large files without using outside apps. It's hard to choose, but a few of my favorite personal tricks are the ability to merge separate emails into one thread, easily set up a hello at or info at email address, and the fact that Hey blocks spyware on emails and tells you when people are using it. Finally, a genuinely thoughtful approach to email. Visit hey.com now to start a free 14-day trial and experience email's new heyday. Once again, that's hey.com for a free 14-day trial. Let's move on to a question from Parker, who says, I'm taking time off of work as a result of some burnout, and I'm looking for inspiration as to how I might spend this time. Travel is my go-to, but during COVID times, I'm looking for alternatives. How might I spend this time in a way that allows me to recover from burnout, but also be open and attuned to what's next for me? So one of my favorite activities is, and this was before COVID, but so handy during COVID times, is the sort of home retreat. And I think of it as a no inputs retreat. So earlier I was talking about this idea of 
inputs and outputs. So really thinking about what am I consuming in terms of media, podcasts, books, etc. Is it positive? Is it negative? What is the quantity? Is the quantity too high? And how much room do I have, on the other hand, for outputs, for my own creative thinking, right? For my own reflection, not necessarily making things, but just reflecting, right? Having space in your brain, downtime. And this idea of doing an inputs retreat, I think, is really, really interesting. So it could be the idea of maybe you don't want to take your whole uh, vacation to do this, but you could say take four or five days and go on a full inputs retreat. And I did this uh, last spring, I want to say, and I basically cut out um, you know, any type of uh, Netflix or podcasts. I didn't do any reading at all, which for me is like completely insane. I'm the sort of person who normally would be like reading a book while I microwave something, you know, I'm reading before bed, I'm reading during breakfast. So no reading. Um, no, I, I allowed myself to call people and, you know, so I didn't want to cut out social interaction, but really any of those inputs, um, you know, music was okay. Um, but you know, no TV, no internet, no email, um, no podcasts, no reading, right? So none of that sort of consumption that happens and that happens primarily through screens and primarily through the internet. So just removing that entirely which sounds really, really scary and sort of is scary because you're just there in the confines of your own mind. And then perhaps adding in a layer of journaling throughout that time period. So maybe even if you're really dedicated to it, journaling once or even twice a day about what's kind of coming up for you, because it sounds like you're trying to not just recover, right, but also figure out what's next. Um, you know, so maybe doing some journaling about the types of stuff that is coming up when you kind of have all of this downtime with your brain. And if it's possible, I don't know what level of accessibility you have, but, you know, ideally it would be great to, as you turn off that kind of faucet of inputs to maybe then, you know, spend more time in nature, maybe spend more time exercising, spending a lot more time sort of in the body. I think especially in terms of recovering from burnout and also really getting in touch with your intuition, with what's next. So much of that is about getting back in touch with the body and getting back in touch with your body necessarily means sort of disconnecting from screens, disconnecting from all this media. Because when we're in that space is when we're locked in front of the computer, or even when we're out listening to a podcast, right, we're still really living in the headspace. We're not kind of in 3D physical space in the body. And when you come back into that space, there's actually a lot of wisdom and a lot of intuition you can access. So what I would recommend to you is really thinking about turning down the dial, maybe even turning down the faucet on your inputs for a few days, getting a journal, starting to write down a bit what's coming up for you, what thoughts are coming up for you, and trying to do a lot of more embodied activities to really start to ground back into the body. And that's going to be really rejuvenating for you. And I think that'll be a good starting point. I see another question here from Clayton who says, I, like so many, was laid off during the pandemic. I usually feel like I'm okay with showing myself tenderness, but I'm finding it difficult to juggle being tender with doing the work of finding employment. 
I think part of this is due to the pandemic, where the rest of my days are so static and a lot of the same things repeated over and over again, never lack of trying to diversify. It's so much of the same, capped off by the frustrating work of job hunting. Any suggestions on how to strike a better balance? So I think this question comes back to two of the themes that we've already touched on. Um, what does enough look like? And then thinking about goal setting. So goal setting comes up for me in terms of thinking about job hunting. So finding a job is, of course, a goal, but it's the type of goal that you can't control, right? You can control how much work you put into the effort, but you can't control the outcome, right? You can't give yourself a job unless you want to start a business and do something like that. But so it's out of your control. So in that scenario, how do you kind of define what's enough? What's enough work to put into that goal of finding a job? And how do you kind of manage your expectations and feel like you're doing enough? And I think with a job hunt, one of the things that you can do and a way that you can make yourself feel better about it is by getting really clear on what is enough. And that's something that you could map out, you know, maybe on a week by week or even monthly level. And so let's say, for instance, you decide in the next two weeks, you sit down and you make a list of however many things seems realistic, let's say 10 actions or 20 actions that you can take in order to help yourself on that job hunt, right? So some of that will, of course, be things like submitting job applications and, of course, just looking for jobs to apply for. But there could also be more, you know, sort of intangible things like reaching out to specific old contacts or, you know, maybe attending online events to sort of try to meet new people and network, right? There's lots of different layers that go into a job hunt. And so what you could do is kind of just sit down every few weeks and bang out a list of like, okay, what are the key actions that I'm going to take over the next two weeks in order to, you know, take forward steps towards this job hunt? And what's going to be enough? Like how many actions of these do I need to take over the next two weeks to feel like I've done enough, right? To feel like I've really put in the work of looking for a job. And maybe that's 10 things and maybe that's 20 things. And you want them to be really specific, right? So one of the line items wouldn't just be like apply for jobs. You know, it might be apply for five jobs or apply for 10 jobs over the next two weeks, whatever it is, but putting a number on it. So again, you have this idea of enough really circumscribed and, you know, just make that list for the next two weeks as long as you think it needs to be. What's reasonable? What will make you feel like you really put in the work, you put in the effort? And so then when you're sitting down to the work of looking for that job, you can kind of just bang through this list. And that's going to really give you a clear sense of kind of when you're doing enough and even like when you can knock off on a given day, you know, so let's say there's you know, 10 items on the list that you want to cover over the next two weeks. Okay, so every day you try to move through, you know, two of the items, for instance, right? And so that way you can give yourself this sense of progress as you kind of tick those things off your list. You can also circumscribe the amount of work to be done so that you feel like you're doing enough. And then hopefully that will then allow you to 
feel at a certain point like, okay, you know what, it's it's cool for me to take a break in the middle of the day and go for, you know, an hour hike in the woods, or it's okay for me to knock off at, <clears throat> excuse me, 5 p.m. today and go for a run because I've, you know, achieved these things that I said were on my list and I've done enough today to contribute to that job hunt. So I think kind of defining enough, circumscribing what those tasks are is going to help you feel a sense of progress and feel a sense that you're doing enough, which then will hopefully open up more space to bring in more of those outside activities, which are going to bring a little bit more balance into your life. The next question is from Julie, who says, I love to volunteer and to be of service, but it's kind of a catch-22 of good stuff. Do you have any thoughts on how you filter through the good stuff when your commitments become overwhelming? I often fall into the trap of overcommitting and then having trouble following through on all of my commitments. Again, just coming back to this concept that we were talking about before of what is enough and defining that for yourself in advance. You know, what does it look like to commit to enough things, to volunteer for enough things? And is it about the number of things or is it about only aligning yourself with things that you really care about? One thing that's kind of coming to mind for me is I think a lot of times for me, and I think for me as a woman, there is this feeling that if I'm good at something, if I'm competent at something, then I should do that thing, right? I should help someone out with this thing, or I should commit to that thing because I can. But it doesn't really have to do with being aligned with my own values or what I necessarily want to do. There's just this sort of feeling of competence that I think kind of gets trained into us when we're very young. And that for me has been sort of a a weird little trap in terms of getting pulled into committing two things because I feel like I, you know, I have to do those things. So that's like another lens that you might um, consider thinking about this through. And if the issue is actually saying no, there are some, you know, very, I think, basic things um, that you can use to kind of build that muscle of saying no. And one of them that I really like is just this simple idea of, um, depersonalizing the no. So one of the reasons I think we have so much trouble saying no is that we feel like people are going to take it really personally. And so shifting, there's sort of two ways to do this. One is maybe shifting your language from saying, I can't do that to I don't do that. So when you say I can't do this or that thing, um, it makes it seem like you can't do it now, but you could probably do it later. It's just like a matter of timing. But when you say that you don't do something, it kind of gives this impression of sort of a hard and fast rule. And in fact, linguistically sort of makes you almost have to come up with a rule. And so some people take that a step further and they actually use the language of like, I have a rule that I don't respond to emails on the weekend, or I have a rule that I don't do speaking engagements in December. Um, you know, or I have a rule that I only do two volunteer projects at a time, whatever it is. And that allows, and people respect that people respect rules, right? So if you just say, I have a rule, they're like, oh, well, she has a rule. All right. She's not going to do it. Right. And it doesn't feel like a personal thing anymore. So that's a really simple kind of tool 
that you can use, um, you know, for saying no to things if that's sort of part of the problem of getting overwhelmed with things. Moving on to a question from Deborah, who says, I'm setting aside sacred space to write this winter. Can you provide some advice on how to welcome the muse, get grounded, and open to spiritual energy in the midst of family life, kids doing remote work, chores, and domestic duties? The first thing that I would say, given those particular circumstances, is to not feel like you need a really long, unbounded stretch of time for the muse to show up, right? I think so many of us have this idea, and I certainly used to hold this idea very dear when I was trying to do writing that I needed to have you know, oh my God, like at least four hours at a stretch or at least a full day, right? To really get some writing done. And what happens is that stretch doesn't come. So you don't write, you don't write, you don't write, right? Especially with all of these different commitments that you're dealing with. I think what is much more important than having that long stretch of time is having momentum. And there's this concept called cognitive momentum that I really like. And it's sort of this idea, I talk about it in my course, Reset, and, and in that context, it's this idea of um, you do sort of a focused period of work, let's say on a writing project, and then you have a little bit of downtime afterwards, and the cognitive momentum from working on that creative project kind of carries over. So you go for a walk, you're not trying to think about the project, but you sort of have that cognitive momentum, and maybe a couple of hits of inspiration come to you. So that's one tiny, tiny thought on organizing things like, okay, so can you do a little sprint of writing and then have a tiny, tiny little space of downtime, right? To sort of reflect. But overall, I think the idea of momentum is so much more important. So it's not about, okay, can I have a two hour stretch or can I have a four hour stretch to write? It's about, okay, can I find half an hour to write every day and keep that momentum going? Because then even across the days, you're having a certain level of cognitive momentum, right? The idea is fresh in your mind. I kind of think about it as the um, energy of the project being sort of off or on, right? And so if you've put down the project for a few days or certainly for a few weeks, the energy is kind of off, right? You're not plugged into it anymore. You're not getting hits of ideas for it anymore because you're not really engaged with it. And so I think it's really powerful to just be engaged with that writing project on a continual basis, even if it's in little, little bursts, right? So if you can just carve out 30, 45 minutes a day to write and then keep a notebook or a journal handy because you're going to have some of that cognitive momentum of doing the work and you're going to have these little ideas pop up when you're running between doing this thing and that thing later in your day to have that handy to make some notes. I think that's much more effective when we're working within all of these constraints than trying to wait for you know, the perfect moment and have this really big chunk of time. And I think that's true even without all of these constraints, right? That momentum is so important to be plugged into the project and to have the energy going and to sort of be constantly thinking about it. It may not be every day, but even if it's like three days a week, right? That you're on a rhythm, three days a week, I'm finding time to write. I'm staying engaged with the momentum of that project. And again, going back to this idea of, that I was talking about earlier of tracking the progress, that can also be really 
motivational for you. So having a little calendar, writing down words written per day, perhaps, um, just celebrating some of that progress. These are all different things that you can do to kind of plug into the project, make small baby steps, and hopefully kind of keep the progress and the momentum going throughout the project. Another question, this time from Miranda, who says, Along the lines of a list that reliably makes you feel good, a lot of things on my keep doing list seem to take extra mental effort that I have trouble accessing. Any approaches to accessing the mental energy to do the things I know will feel good, tidying up, exercising, going for a walk, but require making some extra effort to overcome personal inertia? Great question, and I think the answer is actually not unrelated to the previous question, which is, again, thinking about this idea of momentum and maybe also even thinking about this idea of tracking your progress. So, and then thirdly, something else that I mentioned as well, I'm not sure where in the world you are based, um, but it's, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it's November, the days are getting shorter, the light is getting shorter, and all of that really has an impact on your mood, and it really has an impact on your level to be motivated to sort of take the initiative to do the good things, as you mentioned. So number one, I would say if you're in that hemisphere, if you're in that situation, taking a vitamin D supplement can be a good idea. I also, as a woman, sometimes it can be good to take B12 supplement, which also impacts your mood. Obviously, you would want to, you know, ask a health professional for advice on this, but those are two things that you can do to kind of level out or um, and also combat the sort of loss of sun. I also have been um, opening up my blinds when I go to bed. So the daylight streams in and wakes me up in the morning. And that has had an unbelievably positive impact on my mood as opposed to having the shades down, waking up in darkness, and then kind of suddenly coming into the light. So much of our circadian rhythm, so much of our mood is dependent on that light. So I think a lot of that is kind of underpinning or could be underpinning some of this inertia, not to mention, obviously, everything else that's going on in the world. So those are some places that may be unrelated to your question to think about starting. And then I think it really is a question of momentum. So and understanding and even documenting what that feeling is. So I know for myself, you know, when I exercise, my mood is substantively improved and my partner notices it too. And so when you do those things, one, trying to do them in a rhythm to build momentum. But the other thing that I do is I actually have a calendar up on my wall where I track like, okay, like I exercised today, I meditated today. And it's not like rigorous or really intense. Like it's not like a checklist. I just wrote, you know, like oh, I went for a run today, you know, I went for a hike today or I exercise today. And then sometimes next to it, I make a note of like what my mood felt like in the day. Right. And so kind of documenting a little bit of what you're doing and how that's correlating to the mood can be kind of self-reinforcing and start to help you create a little bit deeper awareness of even though you sort of intellectually know that those things are going to have a positive impact, when you sort of celebrate the progress, document the progress, see the relationship to the mood and have that sort of visual, I 
would encourage you to make it visual, make it analog thing that you can kind of look at. It also creates this, you know, just sort of taps into that human, um, you know, we'll say habit loop um, brain chemistry that makes you kind of want to keep that streak going. So thinking about all of those factors, um, you know, from down to what's happening with the way that you're sort of taking in light and maybe accounting for or combating the the loss of some light on up to tracking your momentum, tracking how your mood relates to that momentum, tracking the progress. I think all of those are things that can help you overcome that inertia. The next question comes from Hannah, who says, my question relates to what you're saying about noticing what's good for your mood and momentum. Any ideas about how to navigate living with someone who you love very much who has different ways to manage their mood and momentum. Things like someone likes to wake up early and start the day and someone else might be me. Isn't such an early riser and I judge myself for it. There is very much in the world that we live in this uh, idea that um, being an early riser is the best way to be right. Early bird gets the worm and um, people who are early risers. I don't want to say your partner, but maybe your partner often, um, you know, kind of run with that and have the feeling that their way is maybe the best way, right? But we all, as I said before, have our own unique circadian rhythm and that can be incredibly different for people. So you may be a regular bird and your partner's an early riser or maybe you're a night owl, which puts you on almost completely opposite schedules. Um, For night owls in particular, it's really hard. Night owls have what... um, what scientists call sort of social jet lag because the rest of the world is kind of working on this sort of regular bird or early bird schedule, you know, where you get up, you go to work nine to five, et cetera. Early birds don't, or excuse me, late birds, night owls don't even want to be out of bed until 10 or 11 a.m. So they're constantly sort of not able to sleep in the pattern that they would like to sleep in and also not able to work in the pattern that they are able to work in oftentimes because they sort of have to submit to this kind of standard nine to five world in which we all live. So I'd first like to just sort of validate you in, uh, you know, the awareness that there is a group of people, and I think night owls are about maybe 10% of the population or 20%. Um, and I want to also validate the idea that, you know, this idea of getting up early, of having to start your day in that way, on this sort of certain rhythm, in no way is better or is anything you should judge yourself for if that's not what works for you. Um, In the course that I teach Reset, I do a whole lesson on circadian rhythms. And what that lesson is about is about really tuning into and trusting what your energetic peaks and your dips are throughout the day, which are different for everyone. As I said, there's this sort of regular bird's schedule, which maybe 60 to 70% of people are on, which looks something like you wake up at seven or eight in the morning, you have kind of maybe your peak cognitive performance from about 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., you eat lunch, you experience a bit of a dip after lunch in your energy, then you experience another little peak, and then you kind of sail into your evening. So that might be a sort of standard rhythm. But there's all different variations for that, and it's completely idiosyncratic, and it's also dependent on the time of year, like what's happening with the seasons, what's happening with 
the light outside your environment, right? Because it's all based on the amount of light that you're taking in. And so what I really encourage people to do is to tap into what that energetic cycle is for you and really get intimate with it. Like, you know, maybe start to track your energy throughout the day. When do you feel like you can tackle big creative problems? When do you feel like you're really tired? Starting to align with that and just starting to really trust that and certainly not letting someone else kind of tell you what rhythm you should be on because when you're able to tap into that rhythm when you're able to tap into your circadian rhythm when you're able to tap into your natural energetic peaks and dips throughout the day and also when you're able to sleep on the sleep cycle that works for you that's like a total superpower it helps you figure out how to align your entire work day and how to work in a way that's much more energizing so that's something I would love for you to maybe start to be conscious of. What are those energetic rhythms for you? Maybe even taking a week, kind of making some notes throughout each day to start to tap into them and become a little bit more conscious. And then start to, you know, align with them in so far as you can. Maybe compromising a bit with your partner on certain things. Um, but trying to develop a bit of belief in the power of your own rhythms, because when you're able to align with them, it's really, really powerful. Let's go to our last question from Mao, who says, what does tender discipline look like for someone who has trouble with procrastination? Thank you so much for this question. I think it's probably one that a lot of people listening can relate to. So procrastination is such an interesting topic. And I think just as the you know conversation around productivity has grown and the obsession with productivity has grown, so too on sort of the other end of the spectrum has the obsession with procrastination and maybe equally the sort of shame around procrastination. And I think there's now this sort of you know overriding cultural idea that um, <clears throat> you know waiting in the process of producing something or taking your time is just seen as sort of universally bad. It's all sort of dumped into this idea of procrastination, right? So if you're, if you're putting something off, that's necessarily a bad thing. But I don't think that's always the case. I think there's kind of two sides to this coin. I think that Sometimes, certainly, you know, one really is procrastinating. You just kind of don't feel like doing something. You can't summon the energy to do something. Um, you know, it's there's a certain dread related to that task, or it's just very unsavory for some reason, and, and so you put it off. Um, on the other side of that coin, I think oftentimes, you know, there's a good kind of waiting. There's a, a good kind of putting off. Sometimes especially when you're talking about kind of creative endeavors, um, you know, that, that idea just needs to ripen a little bit. Um, inspiration does need to come a little bit. So sometimes there is a waiting that can be quite fruitful. Now the question is, how do you tell the difference, right? And the way that you tell the difference is quite simple. And it comes back to this idea that I was touching on earlier of kind of opening up the energy of the project or opening up the energy of the task and this idea of momentum that I was touching on earlier in the Q&A. And I think one of the 
ideas that's associated with procrastination and that leads us to procrastinate in the first place is this idea that you kind of have to be in the mood to do something, right? That you have to be inspired to do something. And I mentioned waiting for inspiration earlier. So we'll we'll kind of come back and refine this idea. But, you know, we have this notion that we need to be really in the mood to, you know, sit down and do some great writing or sit down and write some great code or sit down and make some great art. But I think, in fact, it sort of works the other way around, right? It's not that you're in the good mood and then you undertake the task. I think often the mood itself, the inspiration itself, comes from the doing. And so if we just let the um, uninspired mood put us off and kind of lure us into procrastination, we're really missing out. So I think, you know, the way that I tackle this is, I do a lot of writing. Some days I don't really feel like writing. And some days I'm not entirely sure, like, am I just procrastinating? Or, you know, do I need to wait for this idea to kind of percolate and build a little more? Do I need to wait for a little more inspiration? You know, I'm not sure. So what do I do in that instance? In that instance, what I do is I say, you know what? Let me sit down for a few minutes. Let me sit down for 5, 10, 15 minutes. Not that long and really activate the energy of this project and see if I start to get into a flow, if I start to get into the spirit of it, if I start to get into the mood and the enthusiasm of working on this project. And oftentimes that is in fact exactly what happens, right? So I don't let the mood put me off. Rather, I say, let me sit down and activate the energy of this project for 10 or 15 minutes and then see what happens. See if the mood starts to strike me. See if the creative energy starts to flow. And so oftentimes that in itself is enough, just sort of showing up and giving yourself a really brief amount of time to just connect with the project again and connect with the work. Now, sometimes you'll sit down And maybe you'll even start writing or you'll start doing whatever it is to create the thing that you want to create. And it just won't feel that good, right? You won't feel that flow land. You won't feel that inspiration come. And then those are the moments where you're like, okay, you know what? Like, I am going to set this aside for today, or maybe I'm going to set this aside for a few days, but it's not that I'm procrastinating. It's literally that I am not ready right now you know, to undertake this. I've given it a shot. I've opened up the energy. I've put in the effort, but it's just not coming right now. You know, it's, it needs to keep marinating. It needs to keep percolating. Right. And maybe I'll come back tomorrow. Maybe I'll come back the next day. And all of a sudden I'm going to feel that, right. I'm going to be in the flow again. And so I think there are those two sides of it. So there's not just like kind of one, you know, flat plane of like gray procrastination. There's, there's really a lot of shades in between. And I think we have to kind of show up and put in a little effort to see if, you know, we're just procrastinating, or if in fact, this is a task that needs to wait for another day. And both of those things are okay. And what I find is the more that I get into a rhythm with my creative practice, and the more that I kind of bring this consciousness into my creative practice, the more it's easy for me to see and kind of call myself out. So like I can see on the days, you know, when I'm procrastinating, I can just like call myself out and be like, okay, like you just don't feel like doing this, but it's time to do it. I know you can do it. Like just sit your butt down at your desk and get on it. 
And then other days I can see like, and I can look back at my past experiences with my creative practice, with my creative routine. And I can be like, you know what? Like I can just tell like today isn't the day. Like I don't want to force this. It's going to come much more easily and I'm going to be much more in the flow if I give this another day or two to marinade. And so the more that you become conscious, the more that you kind of hone in on and dedicate yourself to your own creative practice, the more you can kind of see when you're procrastinating and when it's sort of a legitimate time to just set something aside and focus on something else. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening, as well as to all of you who provided great questions during the live event. As always, I am grateful for the assistance of my producer, Matt Susich, for crafting this episode, and to Devin Craig Johnson for our lovely theme song and additional audio fine-tuning. I'll see you soon, and in the meantime, remember to hurry slowly. 